Welcome to Head & Neck Innovations, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals exploring the latest innovations, discoveries, and surgical advances in otolaryngology head and neck surgery. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Head & Neck Innovations. I'm your host, Paul Bryson, director of the Cleveland Clinic Voice Center. You can follow me on Twitter at Paul C. Bryson, and you can get the latest updates from Cleveland Clinic Otolaryngology Head & Neck Surgery by following at CLE Clinic HNI. Today, I'm excited to talk with my friend and colleague, Dr. Will Tierney, a laryngologist and head and neck surgeon here at Cleveland Clinic. You can follow him on Twitter at TierneyMD. Dr. Tierney, welcome to Head and Neck Innovations. Thank you, Dr. Bryson. It's good to be here. Let's let's have you share some background, uh, you know, on your journey to Cleveland Clinic for our listeners. Where you're from, where you trained, you know, how your interests in laryng in laryngeal surgery and head and neck surgery developed. So, I love sharing this with people. I grew up in Northern California and went to UC Berkeley for undergraduate and took a neuroanatomy course, which really ignited sort of an interest in cranial nerves, which is a super nerdy reason to end up in head and neck surgery, but it is actually what got me interested. I thought I was going to be a neuroanatomist for a while, did a graduate degree in anatomy at Case Western Reserve University, and then decided I could not live the rest of my life in a lab working with cadavers or tissue specimens. Ended up in med school at the Cleveland Clinic Learner College of Medicine. That was when I first met Paul Bryson, and realized that laryngology is the most interesting part of our field for me. So after meeting Paul Bryson as a medical student and working with him in the Cleveland Clinic Learner College of Medicine, I did my surgical residency here at the Cleveland Clinic and confirmed my passion for laryngology and then went to Vanderbilt University for a fellowship in professional voice and airway reconstruction. And so following that, it was my honor to return to the Cleveland Clinic and get to work alongside some of the people who got my feet on the ground in the field and got me involved in laryngology from really early in my training. So that's my background. I'm uh, married to an endocrinologist. We have two little boys and my voice gets used both in clinic and then also taking care of them and I'm grateful for it, but it gives you perspective on how we talk and how we communicate with each other. Well, it's a real pleasure and joy for me to be here with you today. Um, you know, to elaborate more on the Learner College experience, uh, Will and I have been uh, working together now for more than 10 years, from medical student to surgical resident, and now as our newest staff member in the voice center and laryngology section. So to say it's an honor is an understatement. Just very proud of Will and his uh, sort of critical mind and his interests. And I'm hopeful we'll get to talk about all of that. But I, I know today we're going to talk about uh, vocal fold paralysis and some of the impact that it can have on patients and some of the treatment options that uh, Dr. Tierney specializes in and some emerging opportunities for patient care here at Cleveland Clinic. So when the vocal folds don't work right, it can really play havoc on somebody's voice and their world, really. 
you want to share a little background for our listener on vocal fold paralysis, what that can mean, what it can look like, sound like? Absolutely. So vocal cord paralysis or vocal fold paralysis is when one of the vocal folds doesn't work and ends up immobile, usually in what we call the paramedian position, which is just off midline. And so then the other side of the larynx in unilateral vocal fold paralysis still works normally, but can't make contact with the unworking vocal cord. So what you end up with is rather than the vocal cords coming together, vibrating and creating sound, you try to come together, but you have a gap between the two, which results in inadequacy of that closure and you can't make sound well. So you can overcome it by just pushing a whole lot of air through the the voice box, which is exhausting. And a lot of our patients with vocal fold paralysis complain of running out of voice. And people with vocal folds paralyzed further from the midline may not even be able to do that. And so the vocal phenotype that you're looking for would be a breathy voice where patients are unable to get a whole lot of air through the vocal cords and have to take a lot of breaths. And so you want to look for this sort of right after someone's maybe had a surgery, which could affect the recurrent laryngeal nerve and cause vocal fold paralysis. But it also happens to people idiopathically, just spontaneously. You know, and I would say it's important to recognize there's actually a lot of common procedures and common things that can result in uh, vocal fold or cord paralysis. You know, in our audience here is likely otolaryngologists and others. Do you want to elaborate on some of the causes of vocal cord paralysis and, you know, just some of the predicaments that, that patients may undergo that then lead them to us? Yeah. So the iatrogenic causes of vocal cord paralysis or vocal fold paralysis are neck surgery, thoracic surgery, and then anything that could potentially stretch the recurrent laryngeal nerve, which if you'll remember from anatomy has sort of a tortuous path going down into the thorax on the left, looping under the ligamentum arteriosum and then coming back up to the larynx. And so anywhere along that line, you can have interruption or irritation of the nerve. And so the surgical procedures we think of are certainly any esophageal procedures as the nerve runs in the tracheoesophageal groove on its way back up to the larynx. Thyroid surgery is one of the more common things that we have to think about in our world. Notolaryngology had neck surgery. But then really any thoracic procedure has the potential to stretch the nerve. We also see a certain amount of vocal fold paralysis or hypomobility where we're not sure necessarily that it's paralyzed versus immobile after some other common procedures like intubation, the thought being that the nerve can be put under some pressure by an endotracheal tube within the larynx and you can have a temporary or permanent immobility following an intubation, either short-term or long-term. There are some other causes that, you know, we, we see them for a number of different reasons, but I think those are sort of the common ones that everybody should be aware of and look out for. And, you know, and I think you, you demonstrated, you know, what the voice can sound like, you know, significant vocal fatigue, difficulty projecting, you know, people will really feel left out socially and occupationally with vocal fold paralysis sometimes, you know, is it just voice? Are there other things that people complain about or experience? That's a, a great question. And 
there are a bunch of different things that people feel are impaired when they lose the motion in half of their larynx. The first is voice. After that, there's also difficulty swallowing. And the classic presentation there is difficulty swallowing thin liquids, patients coughing and choking on water. And then, of course, you also have impairment of cough, which reduces your ability to clear things from the upper airway. And you can have things like increased risk for pneumonia from that, both from aspiration risk and then also the inability to effectively clear the trachea if there were an aspiration event. So, and then the last thing, which we've kind of touched on, but many patients will in fact complain of a primary concern of shortness of breath. And when you dig that out a little bit in the history of present illness, you realize that it's because when they talk, they run out of breath versus if they're, you know, walking up a flight of stairs, they get out of breath. Although it obviously can happen concurrently in some of these people. I appreciate you elaborating on that. So what do we have to offer patients? Like what are the treatment options, you know, versus, and I, I guess I'd frame it this way. Sometimes people have the ability to see us pretty shortly after something happens and their voice changes and we discover this. We get a call from the surgeon sometimes and we can get the patient in quickly if there's a concern. And then other times people will walk into the door sort of, you know, well over a year after an injury or well after a year where the voice has been different um, and problematic. So how do you, how do you break down treatment and what are the options in these scenarios? So treatment for this condition is not simple, but I try to simplify it because that's how my brain works. And so typically the way I look at this is early vocal cord paralysis and late vocal cord paralysis. And in early vocal cord paralysis, people have a relatively high chance of recovery when the recurrent laryngeal nerve is known to be intact. And so if it hasn't been severed during a surgery or you know, destroyed by a tumor, then you have a fairly high likelihood of people recovering, somewhere in the 80% range if you catch it within the first month, but then it drops off every month thereafter. And so I think you're down to about a 50% recovery rate by six months and an under 10% chance of recovery at a year. And so the traditional teaching has been to treat things as early paralysis until about a year out because people still have a chance of recovery. Early paralysis treatment focuses on reversible treatment with um, typically an injection augmentation, which is a filler that's placed into the paraglottic space next to the vocal fold to push the immobile vocal cord towards the midline where it can make contact with the mobile vocal fold. There are a bunch of different injectables which are available and they can be injected either in the office or in the operating room, depending on equipment and surgeon comfort. We here at the Cleveland Clinic often use Restylane, which is a hyaluronic acid filler, and it lasts in the three to five month range. And so if you meet someone the week after their vocal fold has been paralyzed or is found to be hypomobile after a surgery, you potentially can inject them early so that they have reduction in symptoms and then inject all the way through until they're about a year out when you would consider treatment for late vocal fold paralysis, which is typically a more permanent option. And there are a few things that exist. The gold standard is a type one thyroplasty, which is an open surgical procedure performed under local anesthesia with the patient 
awake typically so that the voice can actually be tuned to the patient's demands. People nationally do this with either Gore-Tex strips, which are fed into the paraglottic space through the thyroid cartilage to bolster the vocal fold, or using a silicone rubber called Silastic, which is my preferred method and the preferred method of all my partners here at the Cleveland Clinic. In that procedure, a customized implant is crafted from a block of Silastic rubber and tailored to specifically fit that patient and push the vocal fold into exactly the spot it needs to be in to achieve a good phonatory pattern and get patients back to, I usually tell people, 90 to 95% of their original voice, and they'll, they'll actually have the opportunity to tweak what they want on the table. Yep. Now, I've also heard that you can do vocal fold injections awake in the office setting. Is this true? I've even heard that we've done this for patients while they're hospitalized, recovering from other things like complex aortic surgery, spine surgery, and things like that. So, obviously, uh, Paul is aware that these things are possible, and he and I both do them in the clinic frequently. So, office injection with Restylane or another filler substance is possible and, in fact, preferred in my professional opinion. Uh, we've done some research here that looks at hemodynamic changes during office versus operating room interventions and found that hemodynamic instability in patients is actually reduced by doing this in the office, which is a little counterintuitive. You think the awake patient is going to be extremely stressed out by typically injection augmentation is performed through the mouth with a long curved cannula with a needle on the end. And so that sounds pretty stressful having somebody put that through your mouth, but it's actually a lot less physiologically stressful on the cardiovascular system than going to sleep in the operating room and undergoing suspension laryngoscopy. And so the way that we perform these procedures in the office, there are several different approaches to it, but typically the patient will be anesthetized with lidocaine throughout the oropharynx and larynx, and then endoscopy either with a rigid endoscope or a transnasal flexible endoscope is performed. And then an injection is completed one of two ways. The first is what I already mentioned, a curved cannula can be inserted through the mouth while the tongue is held in protrusion and injection into the vocal fold is conducted through the mouth with the needle entering the vocal fold and then going into the paraglottic space through the superior surface of the vocal fold. The other ways of performing that injection are transcervical where a needle is inserted through the neck and a little local lidocaine is used to make that comfortable either through the cricothyroid or thyrohyoid spaces. There's one other way, which is a transthyroid cartilage, a transcartilaginous approach, where a needle is bored through the cartilage. But all of those options exist, and my preferred way of doing an injection augmentation is in the office on the awake patient who can then show me what their voice sounds like, and I can do a video stroboscopy at the same time to confirm that we have a good placement of our filler. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah, we usually can tailor the treatment and the approach to the patient. You know, we really want to maximize comfort for people so that they can have a, you know, good experience and successful outcome. You know, I wanted to spend just a moment, too, to talk about new research and innovations and some alternative approaches for vocal fold paralysis. You know, one that we could touch upon is reinnervation of the larynx or reanimation of the larynx, really a fertile area for uh, continued research. You know, one of our partners here, Dr. Lorenz, uh, we talked to earlier on another podcast, 
but we have learned laryngeal reinnervation uh, from him. And uh, any comments on laryngeal reinnervation for unilateral vocal fold paralysis? Yeah. So I think laryngeal reinnervation is a really interesting topic because when I first heard about it as really a medical student, I didn't think it was going to do exactly what it does. And so reinnervation is basically when you connect um, a nerve to a non-working nerve. And so in the case of laryngeal reinnervation, we often are talking about an ansa cervicalis anastomosis to the recurrent laryngeal nerve. There are some other donor nerves which can be used, branches from the phrenic nerve, and you can also do some cross-midline grafts. But the, they do not restore the original functional capacity of the vocal fold with full movement, typically, but instead through sort of a synkinetic reinnervation, we'll get bulk and muscle tone back to effectively medialize the vocal fold. Now, there are exceptions to that, and some patients do get some purposeful motion, which is, of course, the hope with many of these procedures. But I've come to counsel my patients to expect more of a medialization effect, which takes place over one to two years after reinnervation surgery. The literature on this in children is actually, I would say, as developed or more developed than in adults because they're not as good candidates for a type 1 thyroplasty because they're still growing. And so laryngeal reinnervation is reached for more frequently in children, and the results there are, I think, a little bit better than the outcomes in adults. That being said, there are a lot of differences in our neurologic development between childhood and adulthood, and so... I think it's a, a, an interesting procedure. It's something that I will usually use in patients where I know that the nerves to the larynx are going to be interrupted surgically. For example, a vagal schwannoma or a thyroid cancer with loss of laryngeal function where we can go in and do a laryngeal reinnervation at the time of a surgery, which is exposing those nerves anyway. But everybody has a different approach to that. And that is just my practice. Yeah, no, that's that's great. We really do try to have that team-based based approach, particularly when it comes to reinnervation with kids and uh, when we know that there's going to potentially be oncologic sacrifice of the recurrent laryngeal nerve. It's a it's a great opportunity to 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 give a fresh nerve supply to the to the larynx um, and avoid some of the scar tissue that one might encounter on a re-exploration. You know, I I guess I would say finally in some of the research, we're trying to customize implants more. You know, Dr. Thierry and I have been involved in some customization of implants based on patient size, larynx shape, things like that. And then there's even some newer clinical trials where the implant can be inflated or shaped or augmented preferentially in different parts of the vocal fold. So it's, uh, it remains a fertile area of research, and we're fortunate to have a, a very high-volume center which to, to learn from and uh, provide care to patients from. Well, you know, as, as you get your practice started here and are seeing patients, what can someone who is referring a patient to Cleveland Clinic with vocal fold paralysis expect as far as a plan of care? You know, in addition to you and your surgical techniques and surgery, who else might, you know, the patient see or who else might a provider refer to, you know, in the context of this? So here at the Cleveland Clinic and 
at tertiary centers who do a lot of this, we work very closely with our speech and language pathology colleagues. And many of the patients who develop one of these paralyses will fall into a laryngeal posture, as we call it, where they're using their larynx in an unusual way in order to produce voice through their impaired larynx. And so a lot of people will move to a higher pitch where the vocal folds can be tightened more to get a little bit of a better closure with less airflow. And once you're able to treat the vocal fold paralysis, often they'll still have abnormal voice because they've fallen so far into this habitual posturing. And so working with a good speech and language pathologist is, I think, critical to taking good care of these patients. Some people get better with really just an injection augmentation or a type 1 thyroplasty, but many people need the insight of a voice subspecialized SLP colleague to really get full benefit from those services. So we do that, I think, very well here and work one-on-one with speech and language pathologists, both in the office and um, and then also refer to one another. And um, I think our patients benefit from it dramatically. Yeah, I, w- I would agree. You know, as, as we wrap up today, can you give us any, give the listener any take-home messages, when to refer? You know, we're going to provide, you know, some information uh, for referring people to send patients, but any, any take-homes for listeners today? I think the most important thing is to know that if there's a voice problem that isn't easily fixed or identified in the clinic have a low threshold to send them to a, a voice healthcare professional, a laryngologist, a speech and language pathologist who's been trained in voice. And it's a relatively small community nationally. So there's probably someone near where you practice that has access to video stroboscopy and can identify what's going on and then get them to the people who do the specific procedures that they need. So the biggest take home point, you know, both within otolaryngology and outside is to send dysphonia to people who specifically treat it. And I think most people do very well with that approach. Well, I I really appreciate your time today. You know, I'd I'd encourage our listeners, if you have patients that you're concerned about with voice, please send them to Dr. Tierney and to our team. You know, we're excited to help. We have a a multidisciplinary team and a lot of tools at our disposal to try to give your patients the best care. Well, Dr. Tierney, thanks for joining Head & Neck Innovations. My pleasure, Paul. For more information on vocal cord paralysis treatment at Cleveland Clinic, please visit clevelandclinic.org slash vocal cord paralysis. That's clevelandclinic.org slash vocal cord paralysis. And to speak with a specialist or submit a referral, please call 216-444-8500. That's 216-444-8500. Thanks for listening to Head & Neck Innovations. You can find additional podcast episodes on our website at clevelandclinic.org forward slash podcasts. Or you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic experts in otolaryngology, head and neck surgery on our Consult QD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org forward slash 
Head and Neck. Thank you for listening, and join us again next time. Thank you.